And when you teach people how to be mad and who to be mad at and whether to express their anger, yeah. right? For example, you don't go to City Hall to complain about a school issue. You go to the school board Welcome to episode 13 of Speaking the Truth with your host, Anthony Brown. This episode of Speaking the Truth is brought to you by Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown and he will help you. Go to www.associateslifecoachingandcounseling.com or call 281 281- Five four five five zero zero three. This episode is also brought to you by Anyone Can Travel. If you plan on going out of town, whether it be local in the states or overseas, contact David Weefall at Anyone Can Travel at gmail.com. That's any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. Or you may contact him at 832 577 1735. Or if you need some extra money and would like to sell travel, contact David Weefall. Any, the number one, can travel at gmail.com. So I'm very excited that uh, I'm approaching my 1,000 listener uh, number. Uh, by this time next week, uh, it should be at 1,000. Uh, I started this podcast about... Uh, three months ago, uh, this episode 13, so I guess 13 weeks ago. And I was going to take a break and let that be season one. Uh, however, shenanigans keep happening in, in, in the uh, news, and it keeps, me, uh, it keeps me wanting to speak about, speak the truth about things that are so true or shed light on what's, uh, what's true. So with that being said... Um, I want to encourage you to continue listen to Speaking the Truth, uh, and um, I want to encourage you to listen it listen to it on uh, different formats. Of course, you can listen to it on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to it on Apple Podcasts, make sure you subscribe uh, and to also rate it and leave comments. That way, it will be noticeable to other people that can, that will want to listen to this programming. Also on Google Play is another uh, format for speaking the truth that uh, that you can find it on if you're not uh, don't have Apple products. You could also find this program being on the uh, following. Uh, you can find it on Castbox, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. And my favorite, Radio Public. Radio Public is monetized, so that's why it's my favorite. Uh, uh, so if you, you uh, 
it's important to try to subscribe on any of these formats that you would like to uh, listen to it on. And also, uh, you can also find it on Twitter. There's a link on Twitter and a link on Facebook group. I, there's a sp- Facebook group for Speaking the Truth. And uh, so I, if you're on Facebook, uh, I encourage you to look for Speaking the Truth with Anthony Brown. And you'll see my picture there and uh, other information that are there. So uh, I just wanted to encourage you to do that. I also keep a few uh, episodes on YouTube and then uh, a few episodes on SoundCloud, but it's not the full the full episode. So uh, listen to one of the other formats to get the full effect of speaking the truth. Today I um, was uh, turned on to a, an app called Vado. V-A-U-D-L-E. This is a new app. It's an exciting app. And so Speaking the Truth can be found on that as well. And how Vado works is if you are an artist, uh, like a singer or a person in the arts and, uh, and also um, also uh, a podcaster, you can upload your, record and upload your information on this app. It's I would say it's similar to a SoundCloud on, um, on an app with if you will, it's it's uh, but Vado is is a very exciting app. I've just been checking it out today, and and, I, and they approved it and uploaded my podcast on there pretty soon. So uh, if you want to check Vado out and you want to also listen to Speaking the Truth, this is a, a another app I want to encourage you to. But this particular app is a little different. It's monetized in a way where if a person wants to um, support something that they like. Uh, like a starving artist, a singer, or a podcast, they can donate money to that particular person uh, to, uh, if they if they choose to. So that's a, a really neat app. And while we are on money, um, this I have decided to make this uh, speaking the truth or listener supported. So I wanted to be the podcast that of of information that you as a listener can tell me what topics you want me to cover and what you want me to cover and then as well give you the opportunity to be a patron so to be a patron go to uh you can find this on uh, the link on um the podcast or you or, or you can find the link on my facebook group so go to patreon you can uh, subscribe at different levels, uh, at least a dollar a month, and what that will do is give me the opportunity to upgrade the show. It'll give me opportunity opportunity to buy new mics. It'll give me the opportunity to hire someone uh, to edit, and uh, so you won't hear have to say "uh" because I'm, I'm a person that's lazy about editing, and I, from time to time I may say one thing or another that I may not. Uh, uh, edit out, so it, it it will just help improve the programming. It's optional, but 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 uh, it will it's appreciated if it's something that you wish to do. Also, if you think you need uh, some immediate help, uh, some immediate sh- advice, short term, nothing's very serious. I would like to offer my services to you. You could do so for people who uh, don't live in Houston by going to. Instant Tango, Instant Go. With Instant Go, you can send a text, or you can use video, or uh, 
video chat or even phone call with instant instant go. So that link will also be on my podcast as well. Uh, and prices, uh, some minimal prices apply to that. So this is a, a way of having some immediate connection. Also, uh, I've already uh, advertised my my service with associates, life coaching and counseling. So let's get on topic. Today, uh, as I've been doing all this month, I would like to honor, for Women's History Month, Barbara Jordan, one of my favorite politicians. Barbara Charlene Jordan was born February 21st, 1938 in Houston, Texas, and she passed away January 17th, 1996 in Austin, Texas. She was an American lawyer an educator and a politician who was a leader of the civil rights movement. She was a Democrat. Uh, as a Democrat, she was the first African-American elected to the Texas Senate after Reconstruction. The first Southern African-American woman elected to the United States House of Representatives. She was best known for her eloquent opening statement at the House Judiciary Committee hearings during the impeachment process against Richard Nixon. And as the first African-American woman to deliver a keynote address at a Democratic National Convention. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, among numerous other honors. She was a member of the Peabody Awards Board of Jurors from 1978 to 1980. She was the first African-American woman to be buried in the Texas State Cemetery. Barbara Jordan was a professor at the University of Texas, and to take her class, you had to take a lottery. You had to, make, first of all, be, have an A average, and then you had to enter your name into a lottery just to take her class. Her classes were just that popular uh, at the University of Texas. Barbara Jordan was born in, in Houston in Fourth Ward, and her childhood was centered in church life. Her mother was Arlene Patton Jordan, a teacher in the church, and her father was Benjamin Jordan, a Baptist preacher. Barbara Jordan was the youngest of three children, with siblings Rosemary Jordan McGowan and Benny Jordan Cresswell. Jordan attended the Robeson Elementary School. She graduated from Phyllis Wheatley High School in 1952 with honors. Jordan created a speech she learned in her high school years by Edith Sampson, with inspiring her to become a lawyer. Because of segregation, she could not attend the University of Texas at Austin and instead chose Texas Southern University, an historically black institution, major in political science and history. At Texas Southern, Jordan was a national champion debater, defeating opponents from Yale and Brown and tying Harvard University. She graduated magna cum laude in 1956. At Texas Southern University, she pledged Delta Sigma Theta sorority. She attended Boston University School of Law, graduating in 1959. So Barbara Jordan, she taught political science in 1960 at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama for a year. It's now current-day Tuskegee University. She returned to Houston and started a private law practice. Jordan campaigned unsuccessfully in 1962 and in 1964 the Texas House of Representatives. She won, however, a seat in the Texas Senate in 1966, becoming the first African-American senator. 
1983, the first black woman to serve in that body. Re-elected to full term to the Texas Senate in 1968, she served until 1972. She was the first African-American female to serve a president pro tem to the state Senate and served one day, uh, June 10th, 1972, as acting governor of Texas. To date, Jordan is the only African-American woman to serve as governor of state, excluding the lieutenant governors. During her term in the Texas legislature, Jordan sponsored or, or co-sponsored some 70 bills. In 1972, she was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, the first woman in her own right to represent Texas in the House. She received extensive support from former governor, President Lyndon B. Johnson, who helped her secure a position on the House Judiciary Committee. In 1974, she made an, an influential televised speech before the House of Judiciary Committee supporting the impeachment of President Richard Nixon. Johnson's successor, a president, so Johnson's successor as president, in 1975, she was appointed by Carl Albert, then Speaker of the United States House of Representatives, to the, to the Democratic Steering and Police Policy Committee. In 1976, Jordan mentioned as a, a possible running mate to Jimmy Carter of Georgia, became instead the first African-American woman to deliver the keynote address at the Democratic National Convention. Despite not being a candidate, Jordan received one delegate vote, 0.03% for presidents at the convention. Jordan retired from politics in 1979 and became adjunct prof professor professor uh, teaching ethics at the University of Texas at Austin, Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. She was again a keynote speaker at the Democratic National Convention in 1992. In 1994, Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the NAACP presented her with the Spigman Medal. She was honored many times and was given over 20 honorary degrees for, from institutions across the country including Harvard and Princeton, and was elected to the Texas and National Women's Halls of Fame. I recognize the gentlelady from Texas, Ms. Jordan, for the purpose of general debate, not to exceed a period of 15 minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Jordan. Mr. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Mr. Chairman, you are a strong man, and it has not been easy, but we have tried as best we can to give you uh, as much assistance as possible. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We, the people, it's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in we the people. Today, I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. 
My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. This is by far the biggest ovation anyone has received here in this opening session of the Democratic Convention. The first time the convention has really come alive on this first night. From Barbara Jordan, Congresswoman from Texas. candidate. Since that time, Democrats have continued to convene once every four years and draft a party platform and nominate a presidential candidate. And our meeting this week is a continuation of that tradition. But there is something different about tonight. There is something special about tonight. What is different? What is special? I, Barbara Jordan, am a keynote speaker. A lot of years passed since 1832, and during that time, it would have been most unusual for any national political party to ask a Barbara Jordan to deliver a keynote address. But tonight, here I am. And I feel, I feel that notwithstanding the past, that my presence here is one additional bit of evidence that the American dream need not forever be deferred. It was at this time, it was at this place, it was at this event, 16 years ago, I presented a keynote address to the Democratic National Convention. I remind you, 
with modesty, I remind you that that year, 1976, we won the presidency. repeat that performance in 1992. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. What we need to do, Democrats, is believe that it is possible to win. It is possible. We can do it. Now, you have heard a lot about change tonight. Every speaker here has said something about change. And I want you to talk with me for a few minutes about change. But I want you to listen to the way I have entitled my remarks. Change from what to what? From what to what? This change, which is very rhetoric-oriented, rhetorically oriented, this change acquires substance when each of us contemplates the public mind. What about the public mind? There appears to be a general apprehension in the country about the future. That apprehension undermines our faith in each other and our faith in ourselves. Undermines that confidence. The idea that America today will be better tomorrow has become destabilized. It has become destabilized because of the recession and the sluggishness of the economy. Jobs lost have become permanent unemployment rather than cyclical unemployment. The public mind, public policymakers are held in low regard. Mistrust abounds. In this kind of environment, it is understandable that change would become the watchword of this time. I would say that Barbara Jordan is a person who grew up with vision. She was a trailblazer. You know, first African-American woman since Reconstruction from the South, elected to the Senate. That gave young African-Americans hope that we could be whatever we wanted to be in life. Hey, how you doing, Kanani? Good to see you. We're in the Barbara Jordan Archives at Texas Southern University, and the archives contain Barbara Jordan's personal papers, her legislative papers, books, photographs, audiovisual materials, and other artifacts that pertain to her life and legacy. Most people don't know that Barbara didn't win the first time she ran, she didn't win the second time she ran, but she had that kind of tenacity and that forward thinking process to say, I can do it, 
that she continued to try and she won and look look what happened a nation is formed by the willingness of each of us to share in the responsibility for upholding the common good if one citizen is unwilling to participate all of us are going to suffer for the american idea though it is shared by all of us is realized in each one of us Barbara Jordan was an American original and a national treasure. No matter what else was going on, when you were with Barbara, you could never quite shake the feeling that you were in the presence of somebody that was truly great. So Jordan's companion for approximately 20 years was Nancy Earle an educational psychologist whom she met on a campaign trip in the late 1960s. Jordan's sexual orientation has never been determined, but some sources list her as lesbian. She would have been the first lesbian known to have been elected to the United States Congress. Earl was an occasional speechwriter for Jordan and later was a caregiver with jo when Jordan began to suffer from multiple cirrhosis in 1973. In the KUT radio documentary, Rediscovering Barbara Jordan, President Bill Clinton said that he wanted to nominate Jordan for the United States Supreme Court, but by the time he could do so, Jordan's health problems prevented him from nominating her. Jordan later suffered from leukemia. In 1988, Jordan nearly drowned in her backyard swimming pool with, while doing physical therapy, but she was saved by Earl, who found her floating in the pool and revived her. Jordan died at the age of 59 due to complications from pneumonia on January 17, 1996 in Austin, Austin, Texas. Barbara Jordan, an American legend. It was my intentions to uh, take a couple week break and to create a second season However, there's something always going on in the news, and there's something that went on in the news that uh, made me want to keep going and not break and uh, report. There was, I keep hearing every now and then negative press about the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement was born out of a group of people who were frustrated, who actually was born out from two women, who were frustrated of, from African Americans being murdered by police officers. And it was been happening for years. It's shown in the media, even before it was in the media, it's been happening for years since slavery. But cell phone video has made it more visible and with everyone with cell phones now and shown in the media. And as a result of this, you have the creation of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
this movement is an international activist movement originating in the African American community that campaigns against violence and systematic racism towards black people. Black Lives Matter regularly holds protests and speaking out against police killings of black people and broader issues such as racial profiling, police brutality, and racial inequality in the United States criminal justice system. In 2013, the movement began with the use of the hashtag Black Lives Matter on social media after acquittal of George Zimmerman and the shooting death of African-American teen Trevor Martin that the preceding February. Black Lives Matter became nationally recognized for its street demonstrations following the 2014 death of two African-Americans, Michael Brown, resulting in the protests and unrest in Ferguson, and Eric Garner in New York City. Since the Ferguson protests, participants in the movement have demonstrated against the deaths of numerous of other African-Americans by police actions or while in police custody. In the summer of 2015, Black Lives Matter activists became involved in the 2016 United States presidential election. The originators of the hashtag and called action Alicia Garza, Patrice Colt, Pertice Coolers and Opal Tometi expanded their project into a national network of over 30 chapters between 2014 and 2016. The overall Black Lives Matter movement, however, is a decentralized network and has no formal hierarchy. There have been many reactions to the Black Lives Matter movement. The U.S. population perception of Black Lives Matter varies considerably by race. The phrase, all lives matter, sprang up as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, but has been criticized for dismissing or misunderstanding the message of Black Lives Matter. Following the shooting of two police officers in Ferguson, the hashtag Blue Lives Matter was created by supporters of the police. Some black civil rights leaders have disagreed with the group's tactics. So, Black Lives Matter claims inspiration from the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Panther Movement, and the 1980s Black Feminist Movement, Pan-African Americans, and the Anti-Apartheid Movement, Hip-Hop, LGBTQ Social Movements, and Occupy Wall Street. Several media organizations have referred to Black Lives Matter as a new civil rights movement. Some of the protesters, however, actively distinguish themselves from the older generation of black leadership, such as Al Sharpton, by their aversion to middle-class traditions such as church involvement, Democratic Party loyalty, and respectable politics. Political scientist Frederick C. Harris has argued that this group-centered model of leadership is distinct from the older charismatic leadership model characterized civil rights organizations like Jesse Jackson, Ringo Push Coalition, and Al Sharpton's Nation Action, National Action Network. So in the summer of 2013, after George Zimmerman acquittal from the shooting death of Trevor Martin, the movement began with the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement. The movement was co-founded by three black community organizers, Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opa Tomilti. Garza, Colors, and Tomilti met through black organizing for leadership and dignity, BOLD, a national organization that trains community organizers. They began to question how they were going to respond to what they saw 
as the devaluation of black lives after Zimmerman acquittal. Garza wrote a Facebook post titled A Love Note to Black People in which she said, Our lives matter. Black lives matter. Colors replied, Pound, Black Lives Matter. Tamelty then added her support and Black Lives Matter was born as an online campaign. In August of 2014, Black Lives Matter members organized their first in-person national protest in the form of Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson, Missouri after the shooting of Michael Brown. More than 500 members descended upon Ferguson to participate in nonviolent demonstrations. Of the many groups that descended on Ferguson, Black Lives Matter emerged from Ferguson as one of the best organized and most visible groups becoming national nationally reorganized as symbolic of the emerging movement. Since the Black, then, Black Lives Matter has organized thousands of protest demonstrations expanding beyond street protests, Black Lives Matter, and expanded to activism on American college campuses such as the 2015-16 University of Missouri protests. So recently, well, the first time I heard something negative about the Black Lives Matter movement in Houston was when the sheriff at the time and the DA at the time was responding to Sheriff Goforth being murdered. And they immediately assumed it was a, a radical movement and it was of a radical movement and someone... Uh, Black radical shots, the sheriff's department, sheriff deputy, uh, go forth with the response, and they made a statement that you know you you say that Black Lives Matter, but Blue Lives Matter, which depicted the organization as a radical organization, and something similar to the Black Panther, or or something depicted to a group, which which was to use violence as enemies necessary, which has, is not the case about the Black Lives Matter movement. And recently, a judge has made a statement that questioned whether or not he is fit to sit on the bench because of this statement and referring to the Black Lives Matter movement and other racial uh, um, comments question whether or not he should be on a bench making decisions for black defendants who are overly representative represented in a system that is obviously racial uh, you can go downtown and sit in a courtroom which which I have before and, and notice that African Americans and Latinos are overrepresented in the courtrooms, and and our Caucasian counterparts are just a small, a small percentage. However, there are more Caucasians in the city as a, overall. So it's no way that there could be more um, crimes committed by the minorities in the city, it just doesn't happen. So something's wrong with the system. Something distinctively is wrong with the criminal justice system. But so 
I by me hearing these comments about uh, from a panel that's on a uh, another radio show which which produces their uh, program on a podcast, one of my favorite ones, uh, Houston Matters, and I uh, I've displayed other other um, shows from this particular uh, forum, and they had a forum. Of three people talking the good, the bad, and the ugly of Houston news, and they were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I wanted to share that with you, and then from that, let that be prefaced to getting to or to have an opportunity to interview the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Houston, Ashton P. Woods. So first, I wanted to, to play the interview that gave me the the which encouraged me to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement and then from there I want to play the interview of Ashley P. Woods and his ideas of why the Black Lives to, to explain what the Black Lives Matter movement and his opinion is about and to explain what they're doing what they're doing and have done in the Houston area. She said, I will stay. I'm not kidding. I am going to stay for years to make sure that this is implemented. And she has. Panel, as News 88.7's Florian Martin reported this week, the Greater Houston Coalition for Justice, the ACLU, and the NAACP are all asking State District Judge Michael McSpadden to resign. Calls come after McSpadden told the Houston Chronicle that black defendants get bad advice from, quote, ragtag organizations like Black Lives Matter, which he says encourages contempt for the police. Johnny Mata from the GHCJ says the comments show the judge's contempt towards Afro-American defendants. McSpadden commented in a Chronicle article outlining how Harris County felony court judges for years denied no cash bail to all newly arrested defendants in apparent violation of state judicial conduct rules. Area civil rights organizations want a state district judge to resign. Is this good, bad, or ugly? Marco. I think the situation just can't be described anything as ugly. I, I spoke to uh, several judges and lawyers this morning about this, trying to get an understanding of, of this McSpadden. Here's what I heard from these folks, all of them to a person said that uh, McSpadden was a, a good judge, a judge they respected, had a strong reputation, was a tough judge, had always been known that way. They also, although, agreed that they were uncomfortable with what he had said, uh, and that they just said that, well, I just wouldn't put it that way. The one thing that was interesting, though, was where they didn't agree. I noticed a difference in their attitude as to what's occurring in the courts based on the race of the person who I was speaking to. They all agreed to some extent that, yes, there has been a uh, decline in respect for the judicial process. But what they didn't agree on was how much of it was race-based. And this seemed to be almost entirely dependent on the uh, race of the person doing the observation. The one thing I don't like about all this story, though, is the automatic effort to squelch any discussion on this issue and simply focus on a person's character and say everything they said here, we're not going to listen to any of it, none of it counts, and all I'm going to focus on is the fact that he lumped all black people together. I think it's unfortunate that he did that, and I think that we all can agree with that. Don't we need to at least look at the substance of the argument that they all agree is actually true, which is, yes, there is a decline in the respect of the judicial system from a lot of defendants, and it's a big problem. Lisa? Well, I think it's ugly 
uh, the way that McSpadden phrased it. I think it's important, the context. The reporter for The Chronicle, Gabrielle Banks, was asking about a rule that many judges had, um, and it wasn't just the white judges, a lot of judges had this, that did not allow no-cash bonds. It was an ugly rule, and the way that they defended it was, well, we couldn't trust the lower judges, the magistrates, to do the right thing, so we just wanted to be safe and, you know, make sure that we were the ones making the decisions later. It's not fair, and, you know, obviously a federal judge has found the system in Harris County unconstitutional. But McSpadden, in defending his decision, was talking about, you know, a lot of these people, quote, are tainted that come before him. I think what he meant was they have records. And, you know, there's a problem getting people to show back up to court. And then there he went on to his, you know, these young black men, or, you know, not women, but young black men, which is mostly, you know, what uh, we see, not the women, are getting bad uh, advice from their parents and ragtag groups like Black Lives Matter. And he goes on and on. Now, would I call for him to resign over this? I don't think I would. For some of the reasons Marco said, he has a pretty good reputation. I've never heard complaints that he's a you know, really biased or, or racist judge. I mean, obviously, this needs to be investigated, and somebody smarter than me needs to look at this and, and look at judicial ethics and whether or not he compromised those. But I, I would just be cautious. I think what he said was badly said. But it doesn't mean, in my mind, that he's going to give every single person of color who comes before him an unfair shake in his courtroom. Fred. Yeah, obviously, the situation is quite ugly. And Marco, you know, you talk to a lot of different people, but but you have to understand kind of the, the history of how black men are dealt with in the judicial system. And a lot of this outrage comes from that because it is not fair and it has not been fair for many, many generations. So whenever someone had this type of authority a judge at someone at this level who has the authority to decide the fate of someone says such disparaging comments like this, obviously so many wounds are going to be opened up. And it's going to be, once again, like this is a racist judge and black men obviously have no way to navigate the system in a fair way. Based on that context, it's easy to see why there's so much outrage about this and calls for his uh, resignation. Another thing, when he talks about the whole Black Lives Matter movement, many people have so many different thoughts and opinions about what this is. Just saying this organization has no merit, is ragtag, is very unfair to the organization and very unfair to the movement that motivated it. I think judges, uh, in their position, they need to be very careful with what they say. They need to be very careful with how they apply the law to, to different people. We all have personal biases. Uh, we can't get beyond that. We're all human. But the law has to be applied equally. And, and you have to put aside a lot of the things you may personally believe to apply that law in a way that's unbiased. With the way our culture is set up, it's not always easy to do that. But we expect a lot from our judges and our politicians and on all the people who represent us. And we hope that because they're in that position they can make a right choice and the right decision. And when someone stumbles and says something like this, this causes us to say, hey, like we said, the whole system is flawed and there's so much bias and there's no way that anyone can get a fair shot. So it's quite detrimental to the overall system when someone says something like this. No matter what his previous record was, no matter what his previous decisions were, something like this just says, look, this is the whole system. 
Everyone's like this. I understand that, but you know, I mean, you said something that it made it sound like uh, what you mentioned about the experience of, of African Americans, particularly black males in the judicial system, was why I made a point of making sure I spoke to African American individuals in the, who were judges or, or, or lawyers in the system to see what they thought about this, because I understood that I needed to make sure I got their perspective of what they're seeing. I think when I tried to get them to help me understand what particular aspect of what McSpadden said was the thing that really got you. Their real objection was the unqualified lumping of black people altogether in his comments, not the reference to Black Lives Matter, which some of them don't particularly care for either way. Honestly, Black Lives Matter, all organizations, I think you're fair game for being criticized. I don't think that's the racist comment itself. I think the real problem is when you say something and you put everybody in that box, that's when you really have to be careful. And of course, you may try to make observations about what you see. But when I look at what he said and I say, well, you're trying to describe what's happening in your courts, I have to agree. The way you said it, it looked like you were saying every black person does this and is like well, that. And, and that's where wonder, I think people have a problem yeah, with And it. I have to wonder why, see, we weren't there. I wasn't there when the interview was conducted. But I have to wonder why he went to black defendants. I mean, does he feel in his mind anecdotally that this is more of a pro- not showing up is more of a problem with black defendants? Well, the one thing I heard um, about that was d- that... And, but, there are a lot of people who don't show up, and... It could um, be for any reason, and, and, I, and one of the things that I did hear is that, you know, uh, there's a disproportionate share of black defendants. And on why the, is that? Well, and I mean, that's a whole other question. But I mean, anyway, yeah, he seems to be having blind spots on things, you know, and I don't know what the conversation was. Maybe it was a whole long conversation, and this was just one part of it, but I, yeah, there's a reason why blacks are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and it isn't, isn't just that they're just... Batter. No, sure. I mean, you know, there's, you know, they're disproportionately targeted for crimes that that whites are are uh, committing at the same rate. Well, so. it could be economic conditions too. I mean, we all say, you know, that if uh, if a certain communities are going to be under stress, mm-hmm. not well policed, bad uh, infrastructure, lack of education, all these things play into it, and so it's not a race-based thing. It may seem that way because that's how it's being reflected, but what we're really seeing is the manifestations of bad economic and social conditions being reflected in an unexpected crime. And I don't see why that's so... We should be able to observe that, and if we address those things, we could have an improvement in this other area. But if you start saying, no, you can't even acknowledge that there's a disproportionate share, well, now we can't even deal with what is causing that share. Yeah, but the, the problem is that a judge, based on minimal information, has got to sit up there and decide if this guy or woman standing before him deserves the right to cash free bail. If he's going to come back for the next hearing, if he's going to flee, whatever. And so if this judge, if Judge Spadden has these ideas in his head, well, this guy's black, and as we all know, this is the trend that he's seeing, then it colors his opinion, and he may not be granting. I think there's there's a need for some data analysis here, but and he may not be granting uh, the same rights to black defendants as he does to white. I, I agree with that, and I think this is why every person, all of us, and and I think we all do this in our daily lives too. I mean, I don't know. Have you ever you ever stand behind a line counter and you see somebody who is taking a long time, and and you're you start wanting to kind of categorize those folks and say, oh, you know. It's this type of people that are always doing this. And then you have to check yourself and say, wait a second, I'm just seeing this one person doing this right now today, but that has nothing to do with anything. And even if you see it prevalent, I mean, you know, for example, I live in a very highly Hispanic neighborhood. 
And I noticed that it's a little different there. I mean, it's not the same as in other parts of the city. But I have to remember that, well, you know, just because this behavior is more frequent in this neighborhood among Hispanics, I still have to remember, you know, I'm half, half Hispanic myself, but I still have to remember that when I deal with another Hispanic, I can still cannot just assume that what I've been observing in my neighborhood is going to be true of this person as well. And this is where it's, it's a mental exercise where we do have to, what I would call, actively practice non-bias. Mm -hmm. We observe the world, we see traits, but then we have to remember what yeah, even if these things are true generally for whatever reason. Yeah, and this is a judge who has people's liberty in his hands, so it is difficult. I think, I'm sadly, cynically, I think the reason why I wouldn't call for his resignation is just because there are other judges who routinely violate the law and people's rights on an almost daily basis, and they're still in their seats. So, um. <laughs> And Marco, I wasn't specifically, in my comments, I wasn't talking specifically about white judges. I'm talking about the whole judicial system, because anyone from any culture, any race, they can get into the system and they may have these biases about black men, how they'll behave when they come into the court or anything in their past that may color their decision. We also have to realize that words do matter and what people say they do. Are, are very important. You may not need to jump and say this guy needs to resign because of these comments, but there does need to be a some type of review. Because if something like this occurs and, uh, you know, nothing happens, then that emboldens other people to say things without any consequence. And we, we cannot afford that to happen. I, I, I in don't our disagree work. with any of that. And I think yeah. that's exactly the right thing to do. Right. Uh, judges uh, occupy a special role in our society and they need to be above reproach. Above reproach. And with that, we have solved racism. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> Lisa Falkenberg is a columnist with the Houston Chronicle. Marco Roberts is president of the Log Cabin Republicans of Houston. Fred Goodall is a marketer, blogger, and publisher of the men's lifestyle website, mochamanstyle.com. Lisa, Marco, Fred, thanks very much. And there you have it. Um, so from this particular interview on uh, a panel discussion on uh, Houston Matters, it um, encouraged me to reach out to Ashley P. Woods, and he... Uh, agreed uh, to uh, to to explain what the Black Lives Matter was from his perspective and what they're doing in the Houston area. talking to me um so um give me a little background give the uh the listeners a little background about yourself if you don't mind okay so my name is Ashton P. Woods I'm the founder of Black Lives Matter Houston chapter but um uh as far as the chapter concerned we're involved in everything that doesn't just involve protesting so we handle things 
uh, via election, via policy, cases. What that means is, is that going backwards, um, it's just about putting information out to the masses that would normally not be out there. Something as simple as how it works to take an HIV test all the way down to policy, which um, involves people going to the Texas legislature and helping to assist in shaping bills. Um, one, of the, one of the most recent bills that uh, Black Lives Matter Houston has been involved in was the Sandra Bland Act that got passed into law in 2016. Um, and then uh, two other bills that I've been involved in, and also I have, as a member of Bill of Houston, operated as a consultant to uh, candidates to further an agenda to, uh, to you know, to help black people advance and not live under an oppressive state. Um, one of the ways of doing that is just working with D.A. Kemahad uh, when she was running. Um, I didn't necessarily place my support to her, but I did vote for her, and I encourage a lot of people to do so as well as other team members. And what came up that is, is when we got rid of Devin Anderson, the county wound up saving $200 million because of a marijuana program, um, a marijuana diversion program that we helped to get off the ground. And that program has basically um, a 70% participation rate, which is one of the highest in the country. So it depends on the day that you ask us about what we're doing, but we do a myriad of things. One of the other bigger things that we were involved in is we had our own Hurricane Harbor recovery effort. We raised um, quite a bit of money and helped quite a bit of people. Um, we assisted in the rescue efforts and also all the way down to helping people get back directly into their home. We housed people in hotels. We, um, as far as the national state is concerned, as, a, as an individual activist, I'm born and raised um, and I moved here because of Katrina. I'm a Katrina evacuee. And um, so I've been here. I don't know how to give a start point to how I became to do how I came to do what I do, but I enjoy it, and I enjoy traveling around the country, being a part of change, and um, and helping to bring that back to Houston. Okay, so in, in the last, uh, I guess, a couple of years or so, uh, and especially recently, I've heard uh, the, the former police chief. I've heard the formal uh, DA, and most recently, I've heard a judge to make negative comments about the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, in reference to the former police chief and DA, they assumed that there was a murder of a sheriff's deputy. They assumed that they, the comment they were making was tr trying to, like, if I quote him, but it's not maybe a direct quote, uh, but they were frustrated. Um, so you're murder. talking about Darren Gopal uh, yes. at the yes. end of the summer, the same yes. summer that Sandra Lamb was murdered in Wall Account, correct? Yes. Yes. So here's yes. the thing: when they attacked us, um, we didn't we didn't get a chance to respond, and they didn't reach out to us for comment. But here's the thing: when McFadden made his comment recently, um, I addressed it to the media. I had, I spoke to the media, and I, I started the campaign to get him out of office. Um, as well as other activists as well. The same thing we did in 2016. We are influencing elections. Um, the the thing about it is, is this: I don't, I do not, do not choose to answer to people who are either white or, or adjacent to whiteness. So even mm -hmm. if the police chief at the time was black, um, who might have made those statements, and the district attorney was white, you know, Devin Anderson, who was appointed after her husband, Mike Anderson, died. 
in, in that same seat. Here's the thing. When they can justify the, their overt prosecutions of black people mm-hmm. on the denial of PR bonds that I, I happened to witness Rodney Ellis before he became mission to work on, um, to, to put it into the hands of judges to issue these things in the case of victimless crimes like marijuana or something that's while still like a snicker bar. Um, but a lot of times these judges, including Nick Fadden, said no black risk and that they listen to ragtag groups like Black Lives Matter. But here's the thing. We might be ragtag. We might have the name Black Lives Matter. But one thing you cannot say about us, you know, we, we, we might represent things you don't like. But one thing you cannot say about us is that we're not part of the system. Okay? Here's the thing. The secret weapon to us is, is that white people in their mediocrity and bubble of privilege don't understand and see that black people are just as, if not more intelligent than they are. Mm-hmm. And that we excel in everything that we do. And that the same people who walk around with shirts that say black lives matter and hold megaphones also work in the offices of elected officials, also help to shape policy, also help to help, uh, find, help people find housing, health care, food, transportation, We've done all of those things in this group. Even when I organized Black Lives Matter Houston by myself, it's always been about the idea of teaching black people that Black Lives Matter. I am not here, and I didn't found Black Lives Matter Houston in order to convince white people who may happen to be racist or white supremacists to um, to change their minds about how I look or how they feel about how I look when I could be taking care of my own people. Right. And then, you know, the whole analogy of we're radical, like, you know, the Black Panthers. Here's the thing. This is the foundation. Dr. King is a foundation. Right. Malcolm X is a foundation. You know, Kwame Tor. Right. Tokyo Carmichael, as he used to be called. All of these people said the same thing in different ways. And I'm a mixture in a lot of the activists I work with are also a mixture of these people and groups. And do remember, you know, Initially, a lot of people say, you're not radical like them. I said, well, here's the thing. We want, we don't want to be radical like them. We want to be peaceful. But when did it become okay to tell somebody how to respond in anger? When, it, when does it, when does it stop? When do we stop asking for permission to be angry about how we've been treated over these last two or three, four hundred years? Okay. So it's not so right. Black, so, the, so, so if I'm correct, the Black Lives Matter movement was born out of a response of the black community uh, saying that we're tired of policemen killing our youngsters and that here's the thing black lives matter existed black lives matter as a as a as a movement or as an organization because there's a movement nobody owns that name black lives matter anybody okay. who's black can say black right so okay. it's a movement it's not just an organ now as far as organizational principles mm-hmm. black lives matter exi- pre-existed before mike brown was murdered and no, it wasn't born out of police brutality. It was born out of out of, of a need to fight systemic racism that that allows police brutality to take place while putting us in schools that have metal detectors and armed cops that prepare us to be in the prison, school pipeline prison systems, right? Alternative schools, the the criminalization of black children, where they're harsh, they're more harshly punished for for things that white kids only get a slap on the hand for. So, it, no, it's bigger than, it's so much bigger than police. It's more about every time somebody decides to legislate a policy, right, how does that affect someone who looks like us? 
when they were legalizing gay marriage and they were saying why their partner stopped losing a home, it's because when they when they made gay marriage illegal at the time, mm-hmm. the wholesale legalized um, bill that said you we don't recognize relationships. So in the state of Texas, for example, if I was married to you and my mom decided to come and take the house because you didn't have your name on anything and I had a will, the state of Texas at the time before marriage became legal stated that that the state does not have to honor your will. It does not it did did not recognize homosexual relationships. Which in black, we don't have a lot of money like white folks to fight. We just don't. So when they say this is a white thing because they have the money to go take this to court, what does that look like somebody, for somebody like me or you who don't have the access to funds to file a federal case and do the things that we do, right? So in the same vein, you have to think about things more holistically. It's, it's about everything that could ever affect our blackness, like the fact that black women have to advocate and fight and say, listen, I'm having a heart attack. You're measuring me wrong, right? Or they have to say, you have to give me this, or I can't take that, or I'm going to die on the table giving birth to my child because Texas is number one for um, maternal death during childbirth and among black women, right? So we have to think about how policy affects that and causes those issues. Okay. Now, would you would you say that the Black Lives Matter is an extension of the civil rights movement or it's just that the movement was a foundation for the Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. Um, the civil rights movement never ended, right? Okay. And there were people who did so much more work before a Dr. King or Malcolm X came along, or before okay. the Black Panthers were born, right? They had to get their they had to get their hustle from somewhere, right? Okay. The NAAC, NAACP was pre-existing a Dr. King in the sense, um, or started around the time of 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 his uh, movement into activism. But here's the thing. I would say that we're a continuation and that um, no one generation owns the right to say that, has the right to say they own the term the civil rights movement. And nor should we look at the civil rights movement as something that is a finite period in time when okay. we have been addressing racism all along. The problem is, is I feel like the civil rights movement actually paused because, like Dr. So Michael said, integration was for white people. The problem is, is black people moved into white people's neighborhoods, assimilated, but the white people didn't come to black people's neighborhoods. And then you have redlining, white flight, and all of the other things that took place in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We were talking about busing, gentrification, and all kinds of other isms that may happen mm-hmm. over that period of time. I was listening to an interview the other day in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement. And in this interview... It uh, describes the movement different from any other movements in the, in the African, uh, Afri- particularly the African American community, because it allowed women to uh, to be in leadership roles, and, and more so than any other movement that's been around. What, what do you think? About black that? women founded Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Black women, black women, and and some who are lesbian and bisexual, mm-hmm. black women who founded mm-hmm. this. Black women who happen to be, uh, one happens to be a black immigrant, right? Because one is Afro-Latino, right? They represent the intersectionality that is black people, a diaspora of people. And it's a very important thing because when it, what, what it all boils down to is that a lot of times men 
when they lead, they lead in a way that's misogynistic, paternalistic, patriarchal. And right now we need people who can speak to the oppressions in a way that may have not been spoken to before. Because just like men have been incarcerated, women have been incarcerated in an alarming rate, a very alarming rate. So for them to speak and speak to the intersectionalities of maybe being LGBT or being a woman who happens to be uh, Afro-Latino or, or what have you, it's important that their representation be there because a lot of times, you know, we need it more than a light skin rolls apart. Because the person who decided not to get up from her seat before was dark skin and was an unwed mother, right? We have to think mm-hmm. about the respectability politics of all of this. Hmm. Okay. One thing that um, that I noticed, uh, where you, one thing that that also uh, I, I uh, an interview uh, that I heard was it, it was make a reference to. The criminal justice system being an equal system, and 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 when you go to a courtroom, you see that uh, African Americans are uh, more represented than and Latinos are represented than their white counterparts, even though you know it's not just African Americans committing crimes based on statistics. This 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 is something that the movement is is uh I, I guess uh. uh Part of in terms of lobbying and getting and getting people looking to vote out and things of that nature to counteract that. That's correct. That's correct. In 2016, people don't realize we 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 registered a lot of people. The activist groups got together and registered a lot of people to vote. You realize that Hillary Clinton lost the state of Texas and won Harris County by a margin, a certain margin. But if you pay attention to the dial ballot races, there were more votes counted in the judicial races than in the presidential races. I mean, in the presidential race in the general election. And that was because we hammered home and talked about who was running for what. And that's why we had a 90% success rate in getting Republicans out of the judiciary in the 2016 races. And we plan on doing it again this year. <laughs> now, I'm heavily involved in, involved in labor. And what on a national level, what uh, labor is saying that they're seeing Texas eventually turning blue. What do you what Texas do you see is, the future of Texas? Texas has never been a red state. Texas is a state that doesn't vote. There are literally two million registered people in the city of Houston alone. They're close to five and a half to six million people in Harris County. Now you do the math. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton won Fort Bend County in twenty sixteen. That's never happened before. Mm-hmm. So when you think about when you think about Democrat v Republican, a lot of these people actually don't identify either or. I think it's more or less that Texas is a very deep purple state, and they sway the way that that people who actually make contact with them do, right? Because if you meet a candidate and they work with you and they come to you and they town hall with you and they fellowship with you and they're they're having that skin time with you, you're more likely to vote for them. People vote for people who are familiar to them and have the values that they have. A lot of times it's ideological. But when you throw in things like, Oh, you're upset about a particular issue, but did you know that this candidate feels this way about it? Right? You connect the dots. And when you teach people how to be mad and who to be mad at and whether to express their anger, mm-hmm. right? For example, you don't go to City Hall to complain about a school issue, you go to the school board meeting. Mm-hmm. So whatever a person's running for, 
you best be damn sure to, to, to do your research and to do your due diligence to make sure that if you're really trying to preserve the future that just really does seem threatening as they're in age right now, you probably want to be very careful about who you click that vote button for. So what I hear you saying, if you correct me if I'm wrong, the way to get the vote out is basically to educate the public. Yes. Okay. I mean, people don't realize that Texas is one of the few states that every single judicial seat in the state of Texas is something that goes on the ballot, including the Texas Supreme Court. They are on a 2018 ballot. If the right if the right people ran in certain races, you literally could flip the, the Texas Supreme Court. You literally mm-hmm. could fix it so that when you vote these people in, you turn out so many people, you can get a lot of things changed because a lot of the social problems that we encounter that Black Lives Matter Houston or just the movement at large addresses, a lot of the things that we talk about race-based mm-hmm. have been determined in courtrooms and not in legislatures. Hmm. That's interesting. Including the right to marry or, or, or have interracial marriage, right? Because they, they've regulated marriage for black people all the way through, through time in this country. Hmm. Interesting. Jumping a broom. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, think about it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I'm, I'm going to, uh, Sign off. I really, really appreciate you uh, taking the time out and uh, talking to me on this subject. It's been a, a really educational, uh, re- very educational uh, discussion. No problem. Okay, thank you. So there you have it. You have been listening to an interview with Ashton P. Woods, the founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, Houston, and in my opinion, a, a great sociologist in his own right. So thank you for listening to episode 13 of Speaking the Truth. If you would like to comment on the show, uh, feel free to email me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. If you have any questions about mental health, uh, you can email me at that uh, same email address. Uh, also, if you listen to uh, to the Speaking the Truth on Apple uh, Podcasts, make sure you, subs- you comment and subscribe. And uh, also, you can h- hear me on Google play and stitcher and tune in and iCloud radio and just about any place you can uh find a podcast you can find speaking the truth with anthony brown also if you like to become a patron to this listen supported program uh click on the link for a patreon and, and subscribe it's as little as a dollar a month and uh also if you uh need if you would like to uh, need someone to talk to immediately and can't and out of state and, and want to talk to me and, and need some advice, uh, you can uh, click on the link also and uh, and you can get a response right away through text or phone call or video chat. This has been a pleasure this week to uh, bring to you this program of this has been Speaking the Truth with Anthony Brown signing off.